Hi, and thank you for listening to Dream 10X Radio, where we interview people attempting to live extraordinary lives. Our twofold purpose is to both direct and inspire people bold enough to do the same. Dream 10X. Face your fears. And make your life count. Hey, welcome back to the Dream 10X Podcast. It's your boy, JC. And it's Dr. Capel. How you doing this evening, Dr. Capel? Well, I have champagne. I have water. It's been a great day. Evie graduated high school, so... Evelyn Grace Capel, my 18... Is she 18? Yeah. 17. She's 18. I can never remember the ages of my kids. My 18-year-old daughter graduated from high school today, and I'm feeling that much older. <laughs> but I'm wiser. You know why I'm wiser? Why is that? Because this is episode 30 of the Dream to episode 30 of the Dream 10X podcast and today we are discussing a book we both just read this past week called The Talent Code. And by your myelin has Coyle. been very uh, through all of these 30 episodes your myelin has been, been I've been wrapping some synapses, man. <laughs> so I've been wrapping some circuits with myelin. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you guys don't know what myelin is yet. We'll explain it. Maybe. I, I'm not even sure I totally understand what it is. But so uh, the talent code, you listen to it, right? Yes. And we, we did this pattern last week as well where you listen to a book that I was reading. Yes. And I'm still curious who absorbs more of the content of a book. You who listens to it or me who reads it. So the reason I picked up this book in the first place is because my uncle Dave out in Floyd Knobs, Indiana, recommended that I read this book. And when Uncle Dave recommends I read a book, I read a book. You better read the book. I better read the book. So I got the book. I read it. Uh, I see why he recommended it. It's a very interesting book. However, I think it's uh, most of it is like common sense. Not common sense, but not, not something that we had never thought of for the most part. Like it builds on the common axiom basically that Practice makes perfect, mm-hmm. essentially. But there's a lot of details around that and a lot, of, a lot of anecdotes around that that makes the whole, all these key concepts that he, he brings up very interesting and how he ties them all together, I think. Yeah, make, the why make practice it. makes perfect. Why practice makes perfect, yes. Yeah. And how, how it makes perfect, Yeah, I think. So I, I made notes and about that. it's not that. just arbitrary practice. It's like... It's deep practice. Deep you practice. have to deep practice. That's like, what she said. <laughs> deep is deep practice, deep learning. Everything is like deep now. Yeah. It's like before we were just so shallow. <laughs> now we have to do it deep. Everything has to be deep. Deep learning. Yeah. Oh yeah. So what was it, what was one of the key takeaways that you had for this book? Uh. I'll let you go first. <laughs> As a listener, oh, a book listener. So all right, so it's hard coming from an education background and reading the book. And it was very interesting for the first chapter and the second chapter. And then by the third chapter, it's like, okay, this is Dewey, this is Kolb, this is Dweck, what she does talk about. Um, this is Neuro, David Rock. It's all of these theories that I've like studied a lot. And so it was, it was hard for me to get through the book because of that. So for me, it was like really all the chapters were kind of redundant. At the same time, it was really nice to understand like how the 
Mylon actually works because obviously I've read a lot about it and understand neuroplasticity, which is uh, the in, um, ability for our brains to continue to learn and grow and create neuro, new neural pathways. Hmm. Um, I didn't understand that the myelin is what reinforced that and maintain those neural pathways. So I thought that was really interesting. You think it's pronounced myelin or myelin? I was pronouncing it myelin. You know, I don't know. It's M-Y-E-L-I-N. Yeah. And what it is is some kind of fatty substance that wraps the, the uh, um, uh, not the neurons, but the, what is it, the nerves that the connect nerves. neurons? The, neural, the new neural pathways, yeah. So as you practice a skill, whether it's piano or reading or football or golf or whatever, sets of neurons fire to help you accomplish. Uh, Cindy's showing me her phone that pronounces it myelin. Okay, so you pronounced it right. Myelin. Myelin. The audiobook versus the visual book. Just <laughs> okay. saying. Sure, you got me on that My one. neural pathway. All right. <laughs> All right, so auditory wins there versus the visual. I'm a visual man. What can I say? I like the visual. I don't get turned down by that. Oh, I know. <laughs> what was I saying? Okay, the my myelin wraps the transmitter, the, the connector between neurons with fatty tissue. And uh, but before it does that, it has to figure out, well, which neurons are firing the most when you do something, when you practice something, or when you do something. And if you do a, a particular thing enough, and those same neurons keep firing, there's something in your brain that says, oh, I see that these neurons are highly active a lot of times, and I need to wrap the pathways between these neurons with this fatty tissue to help retain the signal that's transmitted between those neurons better and make that the essentially the data throughput between those neurons now increase the the throughput as well as increase <laughs> increase <Increasing. laughs> as well as increase the speed in which data can transfer through those neurons so that was really interesting to learn about that mm -hmm. uh so there's a, so that kind of biological uh, axiom or biological information behind the axiom of practice makes perfect was very enlightening, I thought. Mm -hmm. And so we build on, he builds on that little core concept throughout the book and makes it even more interesting by bringing in different, even more aspects of learning that helps foster greatness. And for... Personally speaking, becoming great has been something that I've been interested in ever since I graduated from college. A little personal story. I went to go live with my parents in Stuttgart, Germany when I graduated from college. And I remember distinctly to this day, it was clear as day, just um, sitting on the piano bench, talking to my parents in the living room one, one evening, saying, telling them, proclaiming that I am going to be great one day. And they're like, oh yeah, what are you going to be great at? Well, I don't know, but I'm going to be great <laughs> one day. And um, so once I left, finally left the nest, you know, I, I set out to become great and whatever. And I haven't become great at anything yet. <laughs> but so this is a very interesting topic to me. You're is how a do you... great husband. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't 
practiced at that. <laughs> that kind of defeats the whole theorem, right? <laughs> you got to practice at something. It's not something that's... in it. So greatness is not something that is inherent in people. It's not... Um, I mean, you can be really, really smart. You can be born really, really smart. <laughs> Our dog is having a nightmare. Or maybe she's telling us to be quiet. <laughs> she's trying to sleep. She's trying to sleep here. You guys are loud. <laughs> um, but it's not... Uh, it, it, <laughs> <laughs> Having a high AQ has doesn't seem to have anything to do with it. This is another reason I like I really like this book is because remember when we read Snowball about Warren Buffett, he believed that IQ had a lot to do with success in life. Mm-hmm. But this book uh, posits that IQ doesn't have nearly as much to do with success or greatness as practicing and and these other inputs, this this myelin building up myelin and all these other things that go into becoming great. Uh, every they the book argues that pretty much everybody is on an even <laughs> genetically on an even playing field. So there was one point in my rowing career where I thought I was pretty much doomed because I thought I didn't have good genes. I, I didn't have the genes required to become an Olympic athlete. But now after reading this book, I think well maybe that doesn't have maybe you know I'm swayed by what I read right. I don't know what the truth is, but I feel like um, if this book is true, that maybe I just didn't practice enough, maybe, or, or maybe I just didn't have the coaching that I needed uh, to to help motivate me to get to where I needed to be. I, I, don't, I, I, I don't, I don't know what the fact is, but this book seems to indicate that genes uh, are pretty much the same for all of humanity, and that our genetics predispose us to be capable of acquiring the skills that we work at as a survival technique, or not a technique, but a survival mechanism. And so we have these generic capabilities in our our genetics. And that the reason they're generic or, or, or somewhat abstract is to help us specialize in certain things. And we can choose what we want to specialize in. Yeah, blacksmiths aren't born. (laughs) There's one point in the book where he talks about um, there's no reason for us to be able to genetically... He talks about deer being able to stand up immediately and horses being able to stand up immediately Mm -hmm. upon birth because their myelin is already formed. Yet for humans, we can't do that. And the reason is because we don't need to be able to do all these things we can choose our own pathway based on our environment and all these other cultural socioeconomic circumstances and so of course he mentions blacksmiths that we don't need to be able to blacksmith I'm like wait but i'm trying to learn that <laughs> well it's a valid point right yeah. and doesn't it make you feel better that we don't need to we don't need to be specific in blacksmithing we don't we don't need specific genes for blacksmithing we can develop them doesn't that make you feel better sure Another key point that I took out of this was that one of the one of the important aspects of developing greatness is the early onset belief that what you were learning or what you were training to do was a long-term objective for you, mm. something that you wanted to do for a long term 
And then secondarily, the belief that greatness could happen to you. I thought that was really, really powerful. Yeah. Um, and I, I think those were two thoughts that have occurred to me. Like, you know, rowing when I was younger was going to be a long-term thing for me. Yeah. And I totally believed it could happen. You know, being a great rower could occur to me, could happen to me. I loved re- reading about Kelly and some yeah. of the other great rowers, and uh, I totally believed I could be one of them as well. I had the same thing with opera singing that when I was in high school, I wrote, you know, I was going to be at the Met by the time I was 25. There's one section in the book where he talks about this woman who was an opera singer, and uh, she went through some life issues, and then she decided she wanted to be a country singer. Um, and so she went and talked to, or she went and auditioned, and it was an utter failure. Not because her voice wasn't great, but she had no passion in what she was doing. And so she went and studied, like, all the types of music. And had, so that spoke to my soul, because uh, having passion through music and singing other types of music besides opera, which you are very much trained to do specific to the note, hmm. and then on these other styles, you have to exude emotion differently and be free with the music and that's very hard to do when you're classically trained Mm -hmm. so anyway the fact that she was able to go and study all of these different techniques and styles and come up with a plan and then teach people how to do that like uh jessica simpson was her first big rock star yeah she was able to create this methodology and become great at teaching others through her own musical ability. And so that was a really nice reframing of her own talent. Yeah, so there's two critical aspects to that. And and I think the book points out how they equally apply to these other hotbeds of talent, mm-hmm. whether they be soccer or golf or whatever throughout the world. And this deep training, uh, deep practice. Deep practice. Deep practice. Um, <laughs> so this rung a bell with me uh, in terms of what when I was trying to learn to play the bagpipes. Uh-huh. Um, so what's deep practice? Deep practice is not playing through the whole song or tune several times over and over and over, trying to play it better each time. It's chunking it up and getting very detailed about each note and each what do you call it? Uh, measure. Measure, those stanzas, and being very detailed about those exact measurement, those those movements and uh, the phrasing and all that. And, and trying, doing it and, wrong. And, and doing it wrong over and over and over, trying, but hearing the correct way to yeah. do it in your head and playing these little small segments over and over and over, trying to get it perfect and trying to get it correct, as opposed to playing the whole piece. Mm-hmm. And... So he, he mentioned the term called chunking, which yep. is taking information and breaking it down in, into very small pieces and trying to get mastery of those very small pieces. And then as you master these very small pieces, you, you slowly put it all together and you string these chunks together and you become a master of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And my bagpipe teacher had a very simple way of explaining that. She's like, you just take these pieces out and you take them to the woodshed. She called them woodshedding them. You just hmm. take them out and you take them to the woodshed and you beat the crap out of them until you get them good. And then you take another piece out and take it to the woodshed. And so that's the same thing, same mm-hmm. concept, just chunk it. It's not rocket science. Um, so there's a very simplistic way of, of looking at it and practicing it. But 
like my bagpipe teacher, you need a coach to yeah. help you realize these very simple concepts and how they work together to create mastery of something. And not just the simple concepts, but what you're doing right and wrong. Yeah. Like you need somebody to t say that note isn't quite right. Right. Yeah. Right. Or if you're learning a new language, like I'm trying to learn Icelandic right now, but I'm talking all up a storm, but I have no idea if what I'm pronouncing actually makes any sense. Give me some Icelandic. Um, how? Yeah, heiter Cindy. That's good. What's that mean? I'm Hi, Cindy. My name is Cindy. <laughs> I don't know how to say doctor yet. <laughs> how are you learning? Uh, through an app called, well, a couple of ways. Uh, the University of Iceland created an online platform that takes you through like some survival kit. And they have a full-on class in the fall I'm going to take. Hmm. And then I, so I'm doing that as well as a Pimsleur, which is all audio, um, which I have a harder time with. Like for me, understanding how even the alphabet works is wildly helpful because I, learning languages, I'm very visual hmm. and they don't necessarily irony. offer that. Yeah. Irony. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, it's, it's trying to learn a new language and reading this book at the same time was interesting like understanding how I am processing information as an adult. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know any other languages other than English, but I always thought that the the best way or the only way that I could learn another language was to be completely immersed in it mm. and have to learn it in order to survive. Is that the way you feel? No. Nope. No? Mm -mm. Well, so to me, that's the way I'm putting it uh, is the way... Coyle puts it in the book is you need a motivation. You need a mm -hmm. uh, motivation to ignite your desire for long-term practice to succeed in, in some learning, in learning some skill, mm -hmm. which also seems like, you know, well, what's your motivation? So your motivation would be survival. There's other motivations like it's cool or it's fun or right. I have a yeah. passion around this, but how do you find that passion? Right, right. How do you find it? And, um, well, like learning something, a language like that, like, I mean, do you really need to have, have the passion or not? <laughs> you know, it's just, it's a hobby for you, right? Yeah. You don't have to have it. We're not moving to Iceland. So no, I, but I think it's really cool. Iceland. We're going for New Year's, right? <laughs> <laughs> it'd be, yeah, it'd be good to, to know to know it, yeah. <laughs> Bath heavy, that's bathroom. These are important words. <laughs> <laughs> Toilet dance. <laughs> uh, that's bathroom in German, but uh, sort of. Another thing in the book that really interests me was how he looked at he he just he, he looked at different hotbeds of. Uh, not genius activity, but um, greatness activity, mm. I guess, around the world. And uh, looked at like how Brazil started churning out these great soccer teams. Oh, I love that. That was a cool story. All of a sudden. And yeah. so there was a lot of interest there. Like, what is Brazil doing down there to churn out these outstanding soccer teams? And one of the things they were doing, or not one of the, the, they changed their whole way of practicing down there. And nobody else knew about it until some people got curious and went down there and looked at what, how, how they were training. And some of the things they did was to shrink the size of the soccer ball and make it heavier. And also shrink the size of the space in which they practiced in. So they didn't practice in a whole soccer field. 
But that was intentional because it was socioeconomic and urban development. So they didn't have the space. They had to shrink everything. Well, okay. I don't know what what the motivation was behind it. I I, I thought maybe it was just to, to, to shrink the game down and to to increase the speed in which things happened, which also increased the speed in which you learn, mm-hmm. the, the, the reactionary speed of the people participating. Yeah. Now, I don't know what the impetus of that, yeah. those changes were. Yeah, the impetus were, was socioeconomic. But, there wasn't the space to do it, so they still wanted to play. So how do we change the game to meet our current needs? And so they were able to shrink it. And then when they went back into the field, it was like, oh, we can do all this stuff. Yeah, we have so, all this space. Yeah. We're used to like working in this really small space with this really small ball that weighs a ton. Yeah. And now we have this huge field with this lighter ball yeah. and we can do so much more. He equated and, it to um, the basketball games that happened in like urban cities in the U.S. where we don't have necessarily the full, like the one-on-one pickup games mm-hmm. for basketball. Those players are really, really good because they've had to work in a more uh, stricter confines of time and space. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so the concept of speeding up your learning in a shorter amount of a uh, shorter period of time yeah. is really, really fascinating. Yeah. And uh, that was a good introduction to that theme. And I definitely want to learn more about that. Like, how, because I'm, I'm really interested in how do we speed up this, how do we increase the speed of our learning? Mm-hmm. And reduce the amount of work it takes to do it, or if possible. It's important now to all of us that we figure that out because machine we're getting replaced by machines, like it or not. So, so to stay relevant, we have to figure out how we can learn faster. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that's the new reality. That's why this is important to me. Like, I don't want to be irrelevant. You're not irrelevant. <laughs> Again, you're a great Someday. husband. <laughs> Yeah, machines don't want me as a husband, though. <laughs> oh, maybe they do. <laughs> Sci-fi future. We, what do you think of here? <laughs> this book segued pretty well with uh, the Art of Learning book that jo- we read with yeah. Josh Waitzkin. I have two favorite quotes from Rocky, the Rocky movies, and they both come from the Clever Lang, the, the ones where Clever Lang was involved. I think it was Rocky Three. Okay. When Rocky fights Clever Lang. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Um, one of them was when the, the, the uh, uh, what do you call those guys who do interviews? The, the press. The press comes up to Clever Lang and says, Mr. Lang, what's your prediction for the fight? And Clever Lang says, Pain. That's one of my favorite quotes. The other one is, he says, I live alone. I train alone. And... He puts himself in a poverty environment. Like you see Rocky, he's training and he's in this really rich, you know, he's, he's really successful. He's there with Mick and they're in this really fancy club and, or really fancy gym and training for the next fight. Everybody's taking his picture. He's signing autographs and everything. Meanwhile, Clever Lang is in this little hole in the wall gym and he's training really hard. He really wants it. He's motivated. He's fired up. And this book points out that that is a key aspect of these little hotbeds of greatness around the world so one of the examples is curacao down in the caribbean where you know it's a very poor caribbean country but they turn out these fantastic baseball players and so he looked at well why the heck is that they don't have nice facilities like the americans do or these other people do 
you know, American baseball, these, these farm teams and all these kids coming up, they're in really wealthy situations, but they don't do nearly as well as these poor kids who have nothing in Curacao. It's because they're hungry. They're hungry. They want to succeed and they want to get out of a poverty environment. So that's a really, really key aspect of it is you got to be hungry for, for achieving something bigger than, than where you're at, achieving greatness. Uh, the other the other key aspect of that is they have to believe that they can do it and the reason that people in Curacao believe that they can can become great baseball players in the United States is because of one guy I guess I forget his name but he uh, moved up into the major leagues in, in the U.S. and hit a bunch of home runs in this one key game against the Yankees or whatever and he's like a legend in Curacao now. And so all these kids want to be like that one guy. They, they want to emulate that one guy. They want to rise out of their poverty and become great in, you know, an American baseball league. And so I just love that aspect of the whole thing is, you know, that, that eye of the tiger, you got to be hungry. You got to be driven. You got to be willing to practice. Now, the level of practice segues really nicely with Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. Outliers, where he contends that, you know, in order to be great at anything, you need to do at least 10,000 hours plus of practice at something. But this book, and this book points that out, but it also points out there's a lot of great players in sports that hardly practice. And so I was like, well, why? What is the key differentiator there? Is, is it their deep practice is so much deep, so much more deep in the, in the shallow number of hours that they do? I don't know. I, I never, I, you know, I kind of had a question mark in reading that. Well, is 10,000 hours critical or not? Like, if you look at the Japanese teams, they're putting in 10,000 plus, 10,000 to the third power or whatever in practice, whereas other teams probably aren't. But why? What is a... Is at the level of deep practice. One other final thing I think that really resonated with me in this book was the concept of simulation in learning. And he mentioned uh, Ed Link, a guy named Ed Link, who created a flight simulator, uh, a mechanical flight simulator that really seemed to assist people uh, learning to fly on instruments alone through uh, poor visual environments like fog and stuff like that. And by learning, by, by learning to fly on instruments using his simulator, purportedly greatly increased their ability to fly in real life through these, these low visual environments. And so it made me think, okay, uh, there is a lot to simulation and, and learning through simulation um, in safe environments to help you perform in the real world. I, I know that flight simulators are a thing. Astronauts use them. Pilots use them. I don't know who else uses simulators. Uh, but, but simulation was very intriguing. Let me just leave it at that. <laughs> what about you? So yeah, simulation is how we build a lot of our learning and development. So everything you talked about in this book is what we do. So it's micro chunk. It's what we call micro learning, which is chunking. Uh -huh. um, we do simulation because we want to create, especially in leadership development, those experiences where people can come in and in a safe environment, mm. practice talking, having a conversation with a, a, an employee, giving that feedback. Uh, 
working through different situations from adaptive learning like or adaptive leadership. So we give them a safe environment in which to practice. We use a lot of improv too, like different techniques that access the brain differently. Hmm. So yeah, like from that's it, it, it's nice to hear that's exactly what we do, and that's what seems to be effective. And because it gives it that psychological safety to take that risk, and it's okay to fail because this is the way to fail and how you're going to get better. And then that coaching aspect where we're going to tell you. All right, so what do you what did you do good? What did you do poorly? And what would you do differently in a real life situation? How did that person react? In mm-hmm. fact, there's this one really, really cool simulation that we do with Im- Im- improv people. So they're actual actors and they come and you're in a uh, Zoom room, let's mm-hmm. say, or a, a, a virtual conference room. And they're in a situation and then you coach them in that situation and they give you like real honest real-time feedback Mm. about how they would respond to what you're saying Mm. and then you can have that conversation with them after saying okay so what did Mm. you feel when i talked about this with you so it's you wouldn't necessarily have that conversation with your employee but then it's it's a real again safe environment to practice where you understand where the other person's coming from right it's a simulation with real actors with With real real, with real people who are actors yep that's fascinating yeah yeah. So I, I think to put it another way, the thing that was really interesting to me about simulation is that you can practice a skill in a simulated environment and build myelin mm-hmm. without actually doing the real thing. Yep. So when you go to do the real thing, you can do it. Yep. I, I mean, I, I knew that, but I don't know. Just couched in that way made it even more important to me. Yeah. It's a powerful concept. So it makes me want to figure out more ways to simulate things, you know. I really liked it. Um, it made me really, really think about a lot of different things. And definitely a good book. Definitely worth picking up. Thanks, Uncle Dave. I appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Uncle Dave. We'll see you soon. Uncle Dave and everybody else. Woo-hoo! Over and out.